Today's episode is sponsored by Stitchcraft. Stitchcraft is a fabulous and friendly quilt shop, both online and in downtown Boca Raton, Florida. Stitchcraft caters to modern and traditional quilters, sewists, and stitchers alike, with everything from fabric and notions to machines. Let Stitchcraft help you get all you may need for your machine and handwork projects. And you can save 15% by using the promo code NAPS2018 at checkout. Thank you so much, Stitchcraft. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 112 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about color and dye with my guest, Carol Soderlund. An artist and educator for 25 years, Carol's curiosity about the range of color derived from yellow, red, and blue dyes led to her creation of the color mixing system for dyers. Carol encourages the freedom of mixing color by eye with results-based samples to guide the students. A formal high school teacher, Carol was nominated for Teacher of the Year in 2013 and again in 2015 by the International Association of Creative Arts Professionals. Carol is co-author of Playful Fabric Printing with Melanie Testa. She has shown her quilts in juried venues across the country, winning awards, including Best of Show at the International Quilt Festival in Houston, Texas. Carol Soderlin, welcome. Thank you, Abby. It's so good to be here. It's so good to talk with you. And um, so you first began dyeing fabric a long time ago when I was still in, I want to say, junior high school. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so <laughs> it was, was a long time ago. Yeah, 1988. Um, yeah, and you correct. you couldn't find a particular gradation of fabrics sort of in the commercial you know, market for fabrics. And so you thought you, you would start to dye them. So what were you working on at that? moment? Well, I was working on a very large art quilt and I had this this kind of big idea in the middle of the night and I drafted it up and uh, it looks like a big globe. You can see the quilt on my website still. And uh, But it, I wanted to make it look kind of 3D, even though it was a flat quilt on the wall. I really wanted it to have perspective and to be, you know, very dramatic. And so it would be shaped like a globe, although it would sort of be an abstraction of, of um, you know, sort of a quilting pattern, but stretched over a globe. And then it would have rainbows of colors shooting out in different directions. Um, and so I shopped and I shopped and I shopped for colors for the rainbows. And, and I wanted sort of gradations of light to dark to help me create the shape. And I was able to find quite a few commercial colors, but when it came to the grays, I wanted the the basic pattern to be grays to contrast with all those colors, grays to black. And I could find a greeny gray, or I could find a lavender gray, or, uh, you know, purplish gray, or a bluish gray, but I could find grays that kind of really would go together from light to dark. And back then, of course, there was much less available than there is now commercially. But I was pretty frustrated because I had shopped and shopped and shopped and I had little children on my knees, you know, and I'd bring them with me and I'd like give them an ice cream cone, but it really wasn't quite enough incentive. So I started leaving them home with my husband. I mean, I live in a remote area of 
uh, upstate New York, and there weren't very many quilt shops at all. I had to go an hour away from my home to find any colors and any fabrics. And the online business, well, the online business didn't exist yet. It Internet didn't exist yet, at least for shopping. And uh, so it was either some mail order or drive. And so I drove and drove and drove in about a four-hour radiance of my house. And I finally found some colors, but I could not find the grays. So I said to my husband, I cannot make this quilt. I just felt frustrated. He said, well, I think you should make this quilt. Uh, He had a stake and he liked the design too. So he said, why don't you dye the fabric? And I was like, oh my gosh, I never thought of that. And so I was like, well, because I don't know how to dye. And so I just went off and I thought about his comment more and more. And then I recognized that in the American Quilter magazine that had come a month or two earlier, there was an article by Jan Myers Newberry. And that was the name of the person. I didn't know her, but she wrote an article about how to dye fabric in a gradation. And so I kind of took a look at that and thought, well, it doesn't seem like rocket science. I think I could do this. I ordered some black dye. It came. I ordered fabric with it. 24 hours later, I had my gradation of grays that I needed. And it was like, wow, I did all of this driving around. If I had just dyed this fabric, I would have had it so easily at just what I wanted. And so I was pretty hooked on it. 24 hours and I get exactly what I need. Yeah, right. And necessity, right? That's mother of invention. So, um, so, you know, I do have to wonder, like today, there's so much fabric on the market, whether in some ways it's sort of stifling creativity. That's another topic we could talk about. But um, it's another topic, but it's, you know, it's amazing since I've spent the time then, you know, dyeing sucked me in. It was just so much fun. And that was the first dyeing I did. And then I made it in this quilt. And then that was the quilt that won Best of Show in Houston. So that was a little bit of a pat on the back for doing the dyeing and everything. It actually worked very well. And so I was kind of hooked with the dyeing stuff. But even today, even though there is so much wonderful fabric out there and a lot more solid colors lately have been coming on the market in the last few years. And I was at that time, I was using solids. I've gone through all, I love to do solids. I love to do prints. I love to do it all. But, uh, you know, there's lots available, but there's so many colors in the world that still the color that you might need and that you might have in your head, it can be really hard to find. It's amazing that it isn't out there with all of the stuff we have available. But, but you know, this is what people who come to my classes tell me. They're just like, I, just like you, I still can't find what I need. I still want to dye some of my own. I might use what I've bought, but I might also use what I make. And mm-hmm. uh, Right, right. So, and, and I know you've said, um, you said that you were wanting to get three-dimensional color. And I just, I hadn't heard that word before. And I think of three dimensions and color together. I'm not really sure what to envision. So can you explain what you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, uh, generally people think of color Um, like maybe on a color wheel and it's a circle of color and you think about color around the edges of the circle or maybe going across the circle, but it's a flat circle that you're thinking about in your mind. And that is one model of color that works quite well. 
But there are other models of color that later on I, I started getting super interested in color and investigated all of this stuff. And over um, the last 100 or 150 years, different artists have created models of color that go beyond a flat surface and into a 3D surface. Like there's a model of color based on a sphere. There's also a model of color based on a cube. And this is one that really appeals to me as a quilter because cubes are built out of squares. And so if you can imagine a Rubik's cube, and most everybody knows what that is because we've played with that toy of the puzzle of twisting colors and stuff. But if you just erase the colors that they put on it and just imagine your own colors and it sort of goes from a light corner that would be white to a dark corner all the way opposite that would be dark. And then the colors kind of gradate across the surface of this cube. And so on one side, you'll see the yellows to the oranges and on another side of the cube, you'll see the yellows to the greens. And on another side of the cube, you'll see the yellows to the purples. And, you know, so there'll be different different aspects of the cube uh, and the different colors will be arrayed in a three-dimensional way. Mm. And I actually teach dyeing using that as a model in one of my classes, uh, the color mixing for dyer system that you mentioned in the intro. And so we, we dye up a model of the cube and create over a thousand samples of color to put in, to put together in a three-dimensional way. And you really see color a little bit differently when you do that. Because like take any color, whether it's peach or whether it's taupe or whether it's I don't know, brown or purple, you'll see the colors that might be the neighboring colors of that and how to transition from one color to another. Mm. So when you've thought about color in this way, not only do are you able to dye those colors if you want to, but you can also just look at that and kind of be inspired for what color you might need to put next to something in your quilt. Wow, you know. that is really eye-opening. What a neat it experience. It's a cool experience. And people get very excited in that class when they start to see it come together and see this 3D shape and uh, happening. And it's, yeah, it's pretty exciting. And I'm, I'm still excited about it after all these years. And every time I start to dye these colors, I get excited all over again. So, it's, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, you had, you talked about this early success you had where you're this quilt that, that you struggled so much to get these colors um, ended up winning best of show and, and there's nothing more motivating, right? Than success for true. sure early on. And, and um, but, but you hadn't been making art quilts for some time before then and then you you sign up for a class with legendary quilt maker Nancy Crow and for and I, I read that the supply list for that class and we're going to talk about sort of the massive numbers of things here because you just yeah. mentioned thou- a thousand something samples but um, right. but the supply list for this Nancy Crow class was a hundred yards of fabric is that is that right I know it's hard to believe that you didn't. There wasn't a typo or something, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm like a hundred yards. I mean, how would you yeah, even get that in a box? Abby, that's a lot. You know, to be to be really truthful, that's sort of minimum. Nancy has, you know, she's gone on for. I took her class in um, about ten years after I made that first quilt. I was doing lots of quilts in between, but finally got to the point where I thought I might take a class from her, and she was legendary even back 
then, and I think it was 1999 when I did take a class from her for the first time, and her supply list was legendary too. And it, you are correct, it was 100 yards of fabric that you bring to the class, and you're supposed to have every different color that you can, and and all kinds of values from light to dark. And, um, and then you have to also, on top of that, bring a bunch of yards of white fabric and a lot of yards of black fabric too. And so, you know, 100 yards is sort of the starting point, um, which boggles the mind. Yeah. And truly, when people go, either they drive with, you know, bins and bins full of fabric, or they ship stuff ahead, or they bring heavy suitcases and, you know, one pair of jeans and five t-shirts, but lots of fabric to class. And she, you know, this is kind of uh, just what she's always done. And it's really true. If you talk to people who have been in her class, they'll say, yeah, you have a lot of fabric there, but you still don't always have what you need. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. It's a big bar to jump over. So when you sign up for her class, you know, it's kind of have to really have the motivation to, to do that. And you told, and you totally did because you spent Uh a year, getting ready for this class and then three weeks dyeing all the fabric right up to the point (laughs) when it was time to go. And you came with, you know, three times the amount she asked for. Well, yeah, because, you know, I was talking about the 3D model and I had that idea to dye up that model for a couple of years. I'd been studying color and I had the idea that, oh boy, I would understand this 3D stuff so much better if I could really see the fabric and put it in my hand and see the colors all together, not just imagine it, you know, or try to paint it or something. And so I had the idea to dye up these fabrics, but I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be so much work. How can I do all this work? But then a couple of years later, I had the idea, I should sign up for a Nancy Crow class. And I knew about all these colors and the supply list. And so I said to myself, well, you know, maybe this is my time. Maybe this, if I dye up this model of all the colors. I can just dye up bigger pieces and I can bring them to class and then I've got the supply list covered. So that's actually why it took me a year because most of that year I was just sitting on the couch with like a notebook and calculator and trying to like figure out how to make all these colors and how to figure out recipes that so everything would grade eight beautifully. And I did figure it out and then the time I had left before the class started was three weeks. (laughs) So that was kind of crazy. And so I did all my dyeing in three weeks, but it was three weeks of like 15 hour days and ironing into the night because of course I had this time schedule I was following. Okay. If I do this many yards a day and all of this and then, but I forgot that not only do I have to dye it, but I also have to, you know, wash it out and iron it. So I was working pretty hard those three weeks and I showed up in class and I had 343 yards of colored fabric because that made one complete cube model. Mm. And that was the first cube model I ever dyed up. And I did dye it up in big pieces and take it to class. And so, and that, you know, that was a bold thing to do kind of. And it, but I was lucky because it sort of worked out pretty well, just what I was thinking of. And, and uh, so other people took notice that I had done this and, and started asking me, you know, could I show them how to do it? And I was like, oh my gosh, this was a lot. How could I show somebody else how to do it? So finally, actually, um, 
at, at the conference where I was taking this class from Nancy, there was another very, very famous dyer who was attending that conference, and that dyer was Ellen Noble. And Ellen had written a beautiful book, which you can still buy now. It's called Dyes and Paints, and it's a it's a very it's a classic dyeing book. And um, and Ellen came up and introduced me herself to me, and she said, "I've heard about this fabric you dyed, and I'd love to see it." And I said, oh, well, here's the fabric. And I pointed it to all these bins behind me where the fabric was all lined up in color order, you know. She starts to say, oh, it's beautiful. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what you really want to see is this. And I pulled out this dye notebook where I put all my samples of the colors, which sort of is arranged in the 3D manner. If you add all the pages up, you kind of are creating this cube that I mentioned. And so she looked at the dye notebook and, you know, she was like, oh, my goodness, I've never seen a dye notebook like this. You wow. know, she said, you teach dyeing? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I teach dyeing, but, you know, I just did this for me. And she said, yeah, but could you teach this? Uh-huh. And I took a great big deep breath because truly when I did this for myself, I had no idea that I would ever teach anyone else how to do this because – it was just a huge concept in my mind. And, you know, I just had like scrawls in a notebook. I didn't have anything organized at that point. But I was a high school teacher and I had been teaching for many years. So I was an experienced teacher. And she said, but could you teach this? It was a little bit like waving a red flag in front of a bull. <laughs> and well, you know, um, yes, because pretty much I can teach what I want to teach, right? You know, and so I took a deep breath and I said, well, I could teach this, but it would have to be a five-day class. And she just looked, oh, great, because I'm going to have you teach this at ProChemical and Dye. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I just like that was like jumping in the deep end. Right. So and let's so, let's unpack this a little bit. So yeah, so you this, you had. Yeah. I mean, this is a neat moment. And I think there's definitely some things to think through. You know, people can think through for their own lives and their own passions. So, you know, you right. had been you had been a, a high school teacher, which we mentioned in the intro. And you also had been teaching dying already. But the types right. of dying you were teaching were much less involved. Is that right? Well, yes, they were low water immersion and, you know, lots of fun um, dye play techniques, which we all and I still enjoy today. Um, you know, color by accident type dyeing and, um, you know, just having a lot of fun and, and dye play and okay. one day classes. Okay. Yeah. So you were teaching one day classes and you were teaching like locally or regionally? Regionally. Okay. Yeah. Regionally. And so you went, you, but, but you spent all this time, you know, working on this concept that was really complex, but also really sort of, I don't know, show-stopping, I guess. And um, eye-opening. Eye there eye you opening. go. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and sort of, but just did it out of pure passion, you know, something that you were following your own really, um, you know, your own curiosity that you, you felt just really compelled to, to sort of see this project through. Um, and then this woman 
and sort of, and then you you sort of brought it out into the public by coming to this um, this conference with this renowned teacher, where other people who really understood it would see it. Um, and so, you know, we were approached by this this woman who was really well known, and asked if you could do this, teach this, and and really, you were thinking, I, I can't teach this, but but you said yes, and said. I can do it, but for a five-day class, which was much longer and more involved than, you know, something that you had been doing before. Than I had ever done before. I mean, people typically, you know, Nancy was teaching five-day classes. Other people taught five-day classes. I had not taught a class of that length before, other, you know, the, other than high school, where, you know, obviously I'm teaching students every day. But, but I just felt that, oh, there was you know, more than enough material for five days. In fact, the real problem was how to pack all the material into five days. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Stitchcraft. I'm Johanna Felberbaum. I am the owner of Stitchcraft in Boca Raton, Florida. Okay. And what is Stitchcraft? Stitchcraft is an independent sewing and quilting shop in sunny South Florida that caters to people who like to quilt, sew, stitch, and create at all levels and interests. We have classes in everything from beginning quilting to national teachers visiting. We do lots of home decor classes and, of course, bags, which is where I started. We carry fabrics for all tastes, from modern to traditional, but because of where we are, we do tend to bright and happy. We have a very large selection of tropical fabrics and a wonderfully curated collection of batiks. We also carry full lines of K-Facet fabrics and lots of fun novelties and anything else that we think our customers will enjoy. We have a wonderful all-year-round community here in South Florida, but we get visitors from all over the world from as far as Siberia, South America, Europe, just about everywhere. And it's so wonderful because whether or not they speak English, we all speak the same language of fabric. I am a lifelong crafter and got about it in a little bit of a backwards way. My first store, which was on the west coast of Florida, was a shop that I shopped in for 20 years. And when the owner wanted to retire, I didn't want to see it close, so I bought it. And I've worked in retail for a very long time and in various other areas of business and marketing. So my lifelong passion of crafting and my business background just kind of fell into place. We will do personal shopping via email and online, um, even by text at real time across the globe. That's great. Wow. So how should people find you and get in touch with you if they either want to sort of communicate online or even come in and visit if they're in the area? Well, if you're in South Florida, we are in beautiful downtown Boca Raton, right on Federal Highway in a freestanding pink building, of course. But if you're not able to come to South Florida, stitchcraft.com is open 24-7. Thank you so much, Stitchcraft. And now back to my conversation with Carol. 
as soon as I came out with saying I could teach it in five days, you know, that's how Ellen responded. She said, you can teach this in five days. And I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> I'm in trouble now. <laughs> but it, it did, that was like the bold move. And so I had to live up to that. And so, in fact, I did get on the teaching schedule at Pro Chemical and Dye. And we should say we should say what that is. What is Pro Chemical and Dye? Just for people who have never heard of it and, and don't know what that yeah. is. It's a company that sells dyes to dyers, um, to home dyers, and they sell paints and all the things that you need for surface design and books. And, and uh, you know, they have a really, you know, good line of surface design products. They also have a classroom um, associated in their in their business, and and it's a, a little section of their. They have an industrial uh, building not very far from you, Abby. They're in Fall River, Massachusetts. I know. I need to go visit. I think that would be so fun. Yeah. And um, so they do hold classes there, uh, pretty much spring through fall or early summer through fall. And uh, so I got on their schedule, but I made sure that I had like a year's worth of lead time because I knew I would really have to work on the presentation of this material. How could I present it to others so they could understand it and be able to do what I had done in a straightforward way? So I spent... Um, you know, I spent that full year really developing the class, developing handouts, you know, working on my timing and refining what I had done just for myself so that I could present it to other people. And then I did present it for the first time at ProChem. We call it, it's sort of a nickname, we call it ProChem. At ProChem in um, 2002. That was the first time I taught it there. Okay. And, and then, shortly thereafter, yep. I taught it for Nancy Crow. I see. And so, right. Yeah. So then you went back to to where, you know, you where you had started with this and became a teacher there. That's right. And Nancy, you know, Nancy saw the notebook that I had in the classroom that time. And she had kind of heard some of the buzz about all the fabric I had brought that people were interested in that. And she's, you know, Nancy is a dyer. She dyes her own cloth for her quilts as well and has done for many, many years. So she uses no commercial fabric in her quilts. It's all hand dyed fabric. And uh, so she was interested in the fact that I was able to dye all of these different colors. And she heard I had a notebook. So at the very end of that class that I took from her, which was actually a two week long class, she um, said to me, why don't you show me that notebook? And so I did. And once she saw it, she said, I heard you're going to be teaching this. And so she signed me up to teach at her new teaching facility, which uh, we now know is the Timber Frame Barn in Ohio. And uh, so she has a beautiful surface design facility on the, uh, the basement level, although it's a walkout basement, it's daylight, but it's the lower level of the barn. And uh, she has a nice dying facility there with uh, lots of space and teaching room and so forth. And she hires people to come in and, and teach classes. And she teaches classes upstairs on the piecing and um, abstract quilt making, the way she does it upstairs. I see. So was was this... 
would you would you sort of say that this pivotal this was kind of a pivotal moment in launching you into being a national going from being a regional into absolutely. being a national teacher? Yes, it was it was absolutely kind of that pivotal moment because as a regional regional teacher with one day classes, I was teaching techniques that quite a few people knew uh, around the country and other people were also teaching, but this new material, this big material, was my own material. It was my own idea sprung directly from studying color theory and translating the theory that our artists have developed over the years into dyeing and making that transition between color as an abstract idea and at concrete color that you can really make and use in the form of cloth. Right. And so I made that transition and I did the work to make it work easily and in a fun way because the class is really fun to do. People just enjoy it a lot. And so that, you know, that was just a very unique way to die and kind of still is. Um, and do you feel like, I mean, so, you know, I know that that becoming a national teacher or even being able to have opportunities to teach internationally is a goal that a lot of people have, whether they're quilters or they have a different craft that they're focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, right. you know, just having those opportunities to travel and, um, and it's, you know, it's really, I don't know, it's, it's, it's just a neat thing to have as part of your life. And I know it's a goal many people have. So do you feel like the thing that sort of made it happen for you was being able to develop this very unique um, process and unique theory that, um, or application of a theory that, as you were saying earlier, nobody else was doing. In other words, it's, you know, teaching just sort of regular dyeing, you know, a lot of people could do all over the place. But this mm-hmm. was sort of only something you could get from Carol. And and was that, is that, I mean, if you were talking to somebody who was hoping to break into this, would you say to them, you know, develop a body of work that's only you yours? I would absolutely say that. I would say, learn, learn, learn. And and do practice teaching wherever you can. Find local groups that want you to speak to them and want you to show them how to do things and start teaching them what you know. But when you get a glimmer of an idea of a different way to do something or something that might be a little bit unique uh, in its approach and different from what other people are doing, follow that little idea and see where it takes you. Because when you want to go onto the national scene, it's really great to have your own take on things. You don't really want to be doing a, um, you know, a rehash of what somebody else has done. You want to have, you want to have a new vision. You're, you're going to be using some tried and true techniques, yes, but you also want to have your own vision that will. Um, that will set you apart. There will be a real reason for someone to sign up for your class and to invite you to come maybe all the way across the country or to come farther than you would have gone before mm-hmm. and um, to invite you maybe over someone else who's also teaching some some similar techniques, maybe overlaps with yours. But the way you do it and the type of things that you do show um, – show your own personality or your own uh, unique take on things. And and that makes your class interesting and unique. And it will help you if you want to expand 
the the places that you teach or the way that you teach or even if you want to teach online your the things that you offer will be different than someone else's and and there'll be a place for you there'll be certain people that resonate with what you're doing wow that's interesting to me and they'll seek you out right that's right. i really really do think that that's a great way if you want to expand on your teaching to kind of build on the foundation of what you know but take a little farther. Mm -hmm. And really focusing on that content and making that content truly unique and just truly rich, you know, and worth, as you said, buying a plane ticket for. (laughs) Um, So, you know, just to think about that. And and I also really appreciate your honesty and how much time it took you to develop these things. You know, it was a year for you to make the materials to go to Nancy's class and then another year for you to make the materials to teach your own class. And that's a long period of time. This didn't happen instantly and overnight where you were jettisoned into this, you know, um, teaching career. This was a, a long right. time in the making. And I'm right. sure since, and, and there were years leading up to even going to Nancy's class, 10 years. And then I'm sure it's also shifted and changed and refined since then. So it's a long process. And um, in order to, to make a body of work, that's really worth um, this kind of, right. you know, acclaim. So. And because I do teach five day classes quite a bit, I have quite a list of them. Every time I develop a new one, I go through a whole new cycle of development and many times it might be another year or another six months of development for a new class and you know what makes that all possible is really the fact that I just love dying so much I just love this process of creating color and 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 it is like people talk about their passion you know it is there is passion to it because if it didn't interest me to that level I wouldn't feel driven to create, oh, I've, I've developed some, I've discovered some new things. Oh my gosh, I'd like to share this in another way with my students. And that's what leads to another class. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that I've found out subsequently, not just, oh, let's see, my old class is getting boring. Now I need a new class. That's not the, that's not the driver. The driver has to be oh, I found out something else that's really cool. What right. else can I do with this? You remain curious and yeah. um, and yeah. are re- continuing to develop your skills and to follow your own curiosity. And that's what keeps right. it um, alive. And I think that's because also really important. It is important. a lot of work to do this, you yeah. know, and if I didn't have that interest, it would be a lot easier to go, you know, get a job somewhere and someone I would just do some work that someone else laid out in front of me. But for following my own, you know, independent business, I need to have an intrinsic interest in it. Or it just wouldn't be worth, you know, even getting paid wouldn't be enough to pay me for doing the work because there's, as you said, there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, um, so let's. Um, I want to back up a minute and in, in, in a minute and talk about your upbringing. But before we do that, can you describe for people sort of today what your schedule looks like, sort of in a given year? I know you set aside some time to continue to quilt yourself for your own personal projects in the winter but throughout the year like how how much time are you really on the road and how much time are you are you home what is your schedule like 
Well, that has has changed a little over the years. Um, Since I started teaching nationally in 2002, so that's about 15 years ago, I sort of built up and it built up and it built up. And I, for a while, I was teaching 10 weeks a year. And that was away from home. And so that was a lot, Um, a lot of travel because that you know, 10 five-day classes, there are travel days before, after, and there are a lot of preparation days before and after. So it was absolutely a full-time job at that point of 100% working for teaching all the time when I had that level of teaching of 10 weeks a year. So I sustained that for quite a number of years, but it it began to kind of wear on me a little bit that I didn't have enough time on my own for development of new ideas and for, you know, piecing, sewing and making some things, uh, which I still love to do. So I started backing off a little bit on booking that much. And, um, and so I started, you know, just booking maybe more like eight weeks a year. And I did that for a number of years. And I had a little more time for my own work in my life. But now I'm I'm stepping back even a little farther. Um, my husband is recently retired. And as often happens with retirees, one of the first things you want to do is you want to travel different places. So that's um, one of the interesting things we're doing now. And we have the opportunity to, you know, take some longer trips. And we both love to do photography and are studying that and uh, really enjoying that together, which is pretty awesome. So I want some time uh, in my life for travel. And now I have grandchildren too. So I want some time in my life to spend with them. So that time had to come from somewhere. So I had to pull back a little bit from booking as much teaching as I was booking for a while. And now I'm booking about six weeks a year of teaching. And And so do you have um, people mm -hmm. at home, like an assistant or something who's sort of keeping things going or are you the only employee i'm i'm just me it's just me at this point i've been on the verge of of getting some help there have been times where it would have been really nice but still i'm i'm just at at the point of uh, just doing it all myself and mm-hmm. you know i don't know it's like it's a big step to step into the point of having um, employees or, you know, even a virtual assistant or something to help you with email or whatever. I still do all of it myself. And sometimes I'm thinking, well, you know, it would really um, definitely give me more time if I would figure out how I could outsource uh, some of that work. And so maybe I will at some, at that point, I have given it some thought. Yeah. Um, um, you and I are in the same place. So yeah, <laughs> very different, yeah. different work lives, but same uh, thinking when it comes to, to help I, hiring help. So exactly. um, it's, it's a big it's hurdle. It's a thinking process and it's, it's a yeah. kind of a big step. You really have to identify your goals of what you would want out of having somebody work for you, what area you'd want them to work in and exactly mm-hmm. what you'd want them to do and how could it help right exactly and I, I'm that's yeah. the process I'm in right now but I haven't come to a final conclusion yeah. um, I've been following you so when you do all right <laughs> we'll support each other if we, uh, exactly. <laughs> if we decide to so all right so let's back up a little bit where did you grow up did you grow up in the in the New York area no I grew up in California I grew up in the Bay Area in Oakland and um, that's where I 
grew up and I went to college uh, in Santa Barbara for a couple of years at University of California. And then I graduated from University of Washington in Seattle. Okay. And then I, I went to graduate school a little bit in, um, in Berkeley. Oh, okay. And were you, I mean, I know you went on to become an English teacher. Were you an English major? I was an English major and French. And so I did teach English for a while and then I switched over to French. And so actually I had more years of teaching French than I did of teaching English. Okay. Um, and were you always artistic? I mean, were you artistic as a kid? Yeah, actually, I I just always loved art. And I was thinking about being an art major, but I was one of those kind of nerdy kids that I loved all kinds of things. I loved singing and I loved art and I loved languages and I loved history. I loved all kinds of things. And so, you know, it was the typical my parents said to me, yes, but what will you do with art? And I had no clue. And so I thought, okay, I'll take a regular major. And And my father was a teacher, you know, teaching was sort of in my family. And and so it seemed sort of logical for me to go into teaching. And uh, and so I did. And I, and I really did enjoy it. Although teaching, um, I first taught in middle school. And I really respect all those who teach <laughs> middle school. It's, it's uh, yeah, takes a lot. And uh, so I did middle school several years and then I, I switched over to high school, which was a little bit better fit for me. I, I still, I, I, I love teaching high school students there. You know, I, I have an affinity for them, but it was also really fun switching over to adults because it was just wonderful to leave. Oh, there's a lot, a lot of uh, complications in teaching in public schools that um, you know, it wears on you. It's, it's kind of, it can be a burnout job sometimes. It's, it really can. It's, that is a true statement. I definitely felt yeah. that. And when I was a public yeah. school teacher myself, and, um, I'm wondering what caused you to finally leave. So you had this 20 year career. Was it that you were making quilts and could see potential in a new career in that direction? Or is there some other reason? Well, um, in teaching high school, when, when I had children, um, I was out of teaching for a few years while I had my children. And then um, they were like preschoolers. And um, I actually met the French teacher at the high school in the strawberry patch. We were picking strawberries to make jam. <laughs> and she was picking strawberries for her jam in the summertime. And, and she said, oh, you know, we're going to need a, a French teacher. Won't you come back? And... Um, and I said, oh, my gosh, my children are still so small, but my oldest son was going to enter kindergarten. And so I knew he's going to be tied up for half the day. And my youngest son was old enough to start preschool. I said, but, you know, she said, well, you know what? It would only be two days, uh, two hours a day. And I said, oh, so that would fit in with them being involved in like a preschool program and a kindergarten program. So I did go back and I went back part time. So that was perfect for me because I could have some time away from being mommy, which is always nice, you know, have a professional identity again. And uh, then I could also come home and have an hour or two to do some quilting before the children got home from school. So it was like best of both worlds to me. 
And so I did that for a number of years. I taught part-time at the high school, whatever number of French hours were over and above her day. Uh, she, she was the full-time French teacher and I was the part-time French teacher. And uh, so that worked out really well for me. And so I was continuing to do quilting that entire time and saw the potential for um, just, you know, wanting to do more and wanting to do more. So I actually started teaching local quilt classes. At the same time, I was teaching French in the morning. I was teaching quilting mm-hmm. classes in the evening. And that was a hectic lifestyle with young children. And, you know, went through a phase of that. And then eventually, um, one year, there wasn't enough French classes to um, fill a part-time job over and above the full-time teacher's day. And so I didn't have any classes that year except for my quilt classes. And then I just loved that so much. And right. I just felt, oh, it's time to make that shift. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put all my eggs in the quilting basket and leave the French basket behind. behind. And But I'm sure that your training as a teacher and then your experience as a teacher writing lesson plans and working with children um, informs the way that you teach adults. Although teaching adults is different, um, but still, you know, people are people and there's similarities. So I wondered if you have a few tips or things that, you know, are concrete, um, you know, methods that you bring from that former career into this one. I think, yeah, there is actually a lot that transfers over for sure. And one of the things that I know I do that I probably never would have done unless I'd been a high school teacher is the way I plan my classes. Um, Because I don't just, you know, kind of make a list of what I'm going to teach them and make a couple of handouts to give them. I think through every step of the day, like I did when I was in high school, I had my planning for high school students down to 15 minute blocks because that seemed to be the attention span of ninth (laughs) graders. Uh And so ninth graders were like, I knew what I was doing with them every 15 minutes. And sometimes it would take longer than 15 minutes to get something across. But if they were ready for something new, I was ready to shift to a different thing every 15 minutes to keep them interested. And so I that sort of granular planning of the exactly how the class was going to go and thought that through in my mind, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And in order to do that, they have had to know this. So I, it's all very sequential so that they'll have the right preparation for understanding the more complex concepts. You know, that sequential sort of very granular planning is what I do for my five-day classes. And so I know that for the entire five days. Mm -hmm. And if I hadn't, you know, sort of had the training of high school and had to write those lesson plans, and there were some schools I worked in where I had to turn those lesson plans in, in a certain format and so forth. Um, you, You know, that level of planning is one of the things that because dying classes are very active there you know there's a you know I I plan like I did for my teenagers there's certain work that we'll do sitting down and then we need some active work we need to get up and we need to move around and we need to you know do things and then we need to have some time for discussion and then you know so I plan activities that way I plan sequences of thought and so that really really has changed and informed my teaching, uh, just having the experience of of 
teaching kids and, and any kind of teaching, no matter the age, you know, you need to know where you're headed and what the concept is this moment and what the next concept will be and, and how you're going to teach that. And you really focus on the why, like why do things work the way that they do? Um, I know you said like looking in a, a book, for example, about dying, there's some accurate information and there's some inaccurate information. And if you're just learning, it's so hard to know, well, which of this information is accurate and which isn't accurate. But if you know the why, then you can understand and make that determination for yourself and begin to experiment and innovate on your own because you have the theory down. Um, so I, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about the importance of sort of teaching the why. You're really good at, at finding out exactly what I'm about because that <laughs> is so important to me. I don't know where you found this information, Abby, but you really hit it because um, you know, it's just using dying as an example, very often it's presented as a list of things to do. Do this, do that, do the other thing, and you'll get colored fabric. And yeah, it works. And, you know, and you do, you get colored fabric. It's really easy to dye things and get colored fabric. But if you want to get more specific and have certain types of results, you know, you want a certain visual texture, or you want a certain color, or you want you know, to get more specific in your results, then knowing why and why you're doing this step at this time is so helpful because that's what's going to, you know, making the changes, mm, do this step before that step, and that's going to have a change in the result. What change is it going to have and which way do I want to do it? So I, I like to present information in that here are just the basic things you need to know in order to die. And then here are your options. And if you use this option, this type of result happens. And if you use that option, this type of result happens. And so it's because, you know, I think one of the reasons I have this approach to dying is when I started, I taught myself. And I taught myself by reading books that other people had written. And I'd read one book and she said, would say, never use salt. I don't, you don't need salt. And then I'd read another book and it would say, oh, you always must use salt. You can't leave salt out. And I like, well, <laughs> what is the problem here? Why are they saying diametrically opposite things? And that is very hard to learn dying by reading three or four books. It's really a lot easier to learn dying by reading one book. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I, I kind of decided then that I needed to know why for myself and uh, to understand the difference of using salt and not using salt. And so when I present that to students, I like to let them know the difference rather than just saying, here's how to do it. Do it this way. That's all there is. I like to present it in a, in a way of this is why salt can be helpful and teach them the why of it. And then if you leave it out, this is what could happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, see op and see the options and see the why of it. And I think that's really, really education is taking people beyond a, an understanding of just following a set of instructions to really being a dyer, to sort of identifying as, yeah, this is something I am because I actually understand this. I'm not just doing it. I 
I really kind of understand some of the basics here and I know what's going on yeah. in the dye pot. Yeah. And is, that's the huge value of taking a class, you know, yeah, um, is, yeah. is getting that much deeper understanding and being able in the moment to ask your questions, you know, when yes. you're thinking about something and trying to puzzle it out and then something occurs to you and you say, well, what if, and then the person's there for you to ask. And that's such a yeah. wonderful thing about taking a class. And I know you still take classes yourself. When I, yeah, when I can, I, I really enjoy it. And it's always good for a teacher, I think, to put herself in back in the place of the learner, because when, when you've been teaching a long time, so interesting to sit in a classroom and you're looking at the teacher, you're learning from the teacher, but you're also observing the way this teacher is teaching the class. So it's like you're two people. You're you're looking at it as a learner, but you're also kind of have this this meta teacher sitting above thinking about, well, what's her process? Oh yeah, I see what she's doing here. You know, she's leading us in this way. Oh, this is interesting. And you might, you know, you might pick up some ideas that you'd want to learn, uh, that you'd want to use in a class sometime, or perhaps this trying this method might uh, engage your students also. Or and it's also like really helpful to get back in that sense of, um, of not knowing how to do something or feeling like you're bad yes. at yeah, you know, you're bad yeah. at it. Um, and you're frustrated because the thing isn't working and everybody else's looks so nice. And anyway, you know, yeah. um, because as it's a learner, all those emotions of being a yeah, learner, it's an and emotional a experience. Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. and as an adult learner, you know, it can be maybe more uncomfortable than it is. Oh, as we're a kid. hard on ourselves. Yeah. We're very hard on ourselves. Mm -hmm. Kids can be hard on themselves too. Yeah. And I, you know, but, but adults can be so hard because they just, you know, they want it all. I'm, I'm a capable adult. I want to know it. And I want to know it this very moment. <laughs> you know, they want to be instantly successful at everything. And they don't give themselves time to like, do it wrong. You know, it's a good experience to make a mistake and then realize what happened. Oh, okay. And, and you, you understand something in a different way if you've had a chance to make a mistake. The only problem with making a mistake is if you don't have a little bit of help and understanding what went wrong because mm -hmm. you might misdiagnose what went wrong and then you're down the wrong path for a while. Right. But, you know, but if you're, if you're making mistakes actually and you have some kind of help figuring out, oh, why did that happen? Or you, you can trust a few things and figure that out for yourself, perhaps. But then, you know, then you really have a richer learning experience. Absolutely. So that's why, that's yeah. why I love hands-on classes because, oh, gosh, we have, we learn absolutely as much from anyone who tries something and does it um, quote unquote wrong because there's just, you know, with dying, there's really nothing that's wrong. There's just a different result. And some results might be more pleasing to you than others, but it's, you know, it's really not wrong or right, but there are some things that are kind of, you know, we call them right because they just lead to successful results more often or results that more people tend to prefer. 
but very often, you know, trying something wrong might just listen, lead to a new technique. It might be really cool. Right, exactly. Um, That's always something to learn. And the time is never wasted, which is something I have to repeat to myself. Um, Being a mom of young kids who doesn't have a lot of time on your hands, you know, when you work on something, and then it fails, and you're like, I wasted my whole free time today working on this. And now it's in the trash. Um, But you know, you have to just say that's not wasted time. That was um, learning, you know, that was time that I spent learning that that way didn't work. (laughs) So, so right. Um, So that's really important. And I know that you, you, um, you wrote a book um, with uh, a co-author, Melanie Testa, and, um, and that came out uh, fairly recently. And, And how did you meet Melanie? Uh, Melanie was a student of mine at Pro Chemical and Dye. She took a class from me. Um, I don't remember the exact year, but it, it was fairly early on. It might have been, oh, I don't know, around 2004, 2005, something in, in those earlier days. And she really took to what I was teaching very quickly. And she started using the dyeing techniques that I was teaching in that class. And then um, I in her development, she was um, wanting to thicken the dye, and uh, she is a wonderful artist, and she beautiful imagery uh, that she does, and she wanted to do that not only with uh, paints and uh, those type of materials, but she also wanted to do it with dye on cloth. So she was thickening the dye up and using them as paints, and uh, and she was doing quite well. But uh, you know, as you know, Melanie had two other books before the one that we wrote together and uh, uh, beautiful books that she did. But at one point she was getting frustrated by the results she was getting and she was trying different things, but she couldn't seem to get the results she was after. And so she did come back and take another class from me about using thickened dyes. And we kind of went through her process and solved the stumbling blocks that she was having uh, that were, you know, giving her lighter, paler, more washed out looking colors than she desired. And, you know, so we started uh, working on that together. And I did an independent study with her, you know, via email that uh, to really kind of refine her process. And she loved what I was teaching with, you know, techniques of thick and dye. And, and uh, so at, at one point she just said, you know, why don't we write a book? Let's write a book together. I'm using these really awesome techniques of stamping and stenciling. And, and it's not just stamping and stenciling, but it's the way the, way the layers go together that was kind of unique about Melanie's approach. Uh, and I had the the color approach of uh, the way I mix up uh, the thickened dyes, and she had techniques, and, and I had used those techniques, but more individually, whereas she was really into the layering of the techniques. And so we decided to work together and write the book, and it was a very rich experience for both of us, um, while we were writing that book, it was so fun. We were both coming up with new ideas and bouncing them back and forth with each other and refining, uh, refining, refining and trying new things. It was it was a very rich time uh, writing yeah. the book. And working together with another artist is a neat way to write a book. Um, and so I, we should just repeat yeah. the name of this book so people can check it out if they want to. It's called Playful Fabric Printing. So you can go check that book out. And it ended up being published by um, Pokey Bolton, who has been a guest on this show in the past. Um, But originally you had worked with another publisher and then things kind of shifted gears right toward the end. Yeah, 
Yeah, the the publisher went through a big upheaval, and you know they. Um, been sold, uh, and then there was a big upheaval, and you know eventually that reflected on the authors that they had under contract, and they you know they had a lot of new editors coming in and just different ideas, and so they uh, you know they dropped a number of their, their contracts, and we were one of them. It was it was really surprising to us because we were you know pretty close to our final deadline, and so it was kind of a shock that that happened. And we had put so much work and under under fairly tight deadlines, and and we were so excited about our material. You know, it was it was so close to being at the printer. I mean, it was that close that we were just like, whoa! And you know, we just kind of retreated after that a little bit. We pulled back, and we needed to you know kind of rest from because we'd been hitting it so hard for a while and and we just kind of need to get our minds around what had happened and uh figure out it was there a way to move forward and so we took a bit of a break from it all and we eventually came back together and said you know we do have some wonderful material here that we worked hard for and we put a lot of ourselves into so let's see if we can get it out into the world in some way so we were starting to look at other publishers and to select which ones we thought we might want to send a proposal to when Pokey Bolton called us up and said that she kind of heard through the publisher's grapevine what had happened to our title and did were we interested in sending her a proposal. And of course, you know, Pokey was a founder of Quilting Arts Magazine and Interweave Press and, you know, obviously has huge credibility in the publishing industry, but she had gone independent and, you know, started her own um, business called Crafting a Life. And so she was, you know, planning to do some publishing, but also to lead the retreats that she's leading in in Napa, California. And there's one coming up in January, um, that is awesome, but that's a little aside, but still, um, we were just like, this is so exciting because we have so much respect for Pokey and her abilities, uh, and her vision as a publisher. So we, we sent her a proposal and talked about the book as we had it. And, uh, you know, she offered us, uh, uh, the opportunity to, um, be the first book that she published under the Crafting a Life uh, imprint or banner. So that is pretty thrilling for us. Yeah, we, what we a good, working what a wonderful, happy ending to to what was a really stressful um, moment. So I am yeah, so glad. Yeah. yeah, I'm so glad that she was there waiting for you and you had this and were, you know, there for her and it was a good combination. So that's a great, um, a great ending. And I think that it does also say like, don't give up if you, you know, take some time right. to rest, but also if you do have something there and you, and you believe in it, that, you you know, just because it didn't work out for one publisher is not a message that it's no good. It's just the message that it wasn't good for them at that moment. And, um, and it very well may be good for somebody else. Right. And that's what happened here. I think here. part of what, what worked was that Pokey is a surface designer herself. She likes to dye. She likes to print fabric. She, she kind of understands the value of dye you know, paint is a lot of our techniques work very well with paint. They'll be if you're if you like to use paint, you can still buy our book and use paint with it. But Pokey also understood that dye is unique and and 
that people need some education about dye, and there haven't been that many recent books written about dye. There's some excellent books about dye out there, but not that much recently. And so Pokey saw the value and the and the vision for our book, and that's what you need to look for. Is you need to look for somebody who can share your vision of your book. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah, that's super. That's super important. So I want to make sure we get to real quick to some of your recommendations because you've got some good ones, um, and I um, I want to make sure we get to them. So the first one you wanted to recommend is your instant pot, which everybody seems <laughs> to love. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, probably everybody has heard about them by now, but maybe there are a few people who haven't. An instant pot is um, simply a pressure cooker that is electronic instead of a pressure cooker that's on the stove. And the electronic advantage that it gives you is um, the scary part of, you know, the old pressure cookers on the stove exploding and putting rice all over your ceiling or something. That's pretty much eliminated by the electronic controls because it can shut itself off if it builds up too much pressure or something. So it's it's just, um, I know, it, it made me brave enough to try pressure cooking when I had never tried it before. And a lot of people seem to have jumped on bandwagon because it's um, it's pretty fun to use. Uh, my favorite thing is making my own yogurt, and mm. I make my own Greek yogurt now. Um, I make it about every other week, and my husband and I, with a full gallon of milk, and my husband and I eat eat it up. Um, and then you also wanted to recommend a particular thermometer for checking the dye bath temperatures that you really like. Right, right. There's a, there is a laser for thermometer now and it's it's not a it's just a gadget it's not terribly expensive it looks like a little gun a little yellow plastic gun and you just pull this trigger and it shoots a little laser beam into whatever you want to measure the temperature so if i measure the temperature of the floor i just aim the little laser beam at the floor and it tells me how what the temperature of the floor is or the wall or if i want to take the temperature of a dye bath i just shoot it at the water and tells me what the temperature of the water is instantly. Well, that's that's, some, that's super high tech. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I will cool. link to that. That's really neat. Um, and then you also wanted to recommend an app for the iPad called Procreate that you've been using for like sketching out embroidery projects. Yes. So I have... Um, uh, I love to do embroidery as a relaxation thing when I when I you know have some downtime, and uh, so I I use hand dyed cloth. I use hand dyed threads and like to put them together in some embroidery and just love to do it free form without a lot of planning. I don't really like to draw my embroidery designs out on my cloth or anything, but sometimes I want to get an idea of where I'm going with the embroidery. So I will use this Procreate app, which some digital artists are doing absolutely amazing things with it, but I use it at a very rudimentary level myself, but it's still, it's still super fun and easy to use, even if you don't know much about digital art. But so with this app, I can use my iPad, I can hold it over my little piece of cloth that I'm going to embroider on, and I can take a picture of that piece of cloth. And then I can, that can be a layer in the Procreate app. And then I put another layer, a blank layer on top of that, and I can just draw with my finger or with a stylus or with an Apple pencil, if you have one of those for your iPad. 
And I can just draw like, oh, I think I want to put a flower here or I want to put some abstract lines over here. I want to make a leaf over here and I just sketch. And if I want to keep that layer, but maybe I want to try something else, I can just make, I can keep that, but I can hide that layer and then I can try something else and then I can flip back and forth between them and see which I like better or I can erase part of a line or I can erase all of a line. I can do the lines in color, the color thread I think I might be using, or I can do them just with white or with black. So it's it's very versatile and it's very, very simple. So that's like, it provides my whole quote unquote pattern for a little piece of embroidery that isn't actually drawn on. I'm still going to make my embroidery shapes all freehand or freeform, but it kind of gives me just enough guidance. Um, and so it's it's pretty fun to do. And we can see them on your Instagram account. And you've got these great photos that are like a progression of, um, you know, the stitching. So we see it sort of not really filled in. And then as you progressively fill it I, in, and it's really gorgeous. So everyone should go check this out because it's pretty stunning. You're going to say, oh my gosh, I've never seen embroidery like this before. So you should definitely go check it out. I'll link to your Instagram in the show notes so people can um, can take a look. And, um, and yeah, that's really cool. I have two Instagram accounts. One's sort of my more general one. And okay. then this one is just for my stitching. So I see. Um, so you've you got one link, just there. Okay. Just for stitching and that's stitch sewed. And uh, so, yeah, put the link in there. And what I was trying to do is like um, take a, a little snapshot of it each day. So I'd sort of put some stitching in and take a snapshot. And so sometimes I would only stitch for five or 10 minutes, or sometimes I'd stitch for 15 minutes or a half an hour. So there's just a little bit of progress with each shot. Right. It's sort yeah. of fun to see. So from. cool. Yeah. And they're beautiful all together, really. So um, yeah. So Carol, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh Naps podcast. It was super talking with you. Oh, it was really great to talk with you. I've enjoyed uh, listening to your podcast for a long time, and I'm uh, I'm scared to listen to my <laughs> my voice on it. But um, I guess I'll I'll just um, listen into and 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 uh, see what it sounds like when we play it back. Absolutely, you it'll it'll be great. Don't worry. <laughs> so you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And thank you to today's episode sponsor, Stitchcraft. Online or at the pretty pink building in Boca Raton, Stitchcraft is a one-stop shop for the best service and selection for creative quilting, sewing, and stitching. New in 2018 is their YouTube channel for up-to-date tips and techniques for your favorite fiber arts. They offer boutiques, tropicals, cave facet, and thousands of other fabrics, plus embroidery, wool, and punch needle. Make a resolution this year to hone your skills or learn a new craft and let Stitchcraft help. Use that promo code NAPS2018 to save 15% on your next order. Thank you so much, Stitchcraft. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.